0: Hello, friends! Welcome to the Mobile Monger Podcast, where we go behind the scenes in the cheese world to chat with the people making, selling, or distributing your favorite specialty food products. I'm your host, Janae Muha, certified cheese professional, longtime cheesemonger, and producer advocate. Over the last decade, it's been warned that online shopping would replace in person shopping. While the pandemic sped up the use and need for online shopping, we still see new and established shops thriving. Lady and Larder in Santa Monica, California is a prime example. With a punchy, color-forward, aesthetic, and playful storytelling style, they've graced the tables of stars while also being a welcome beacon to the everyday cheese lover. In this episode, I chat with Sarah Sims, one half of the creative twin powers behind Lady and Larder. Let's get to know her a little better, shall we?
1: Thank you so much for having me. So honored. Ever since we ran into each other in person at ACS, I was like hoping this day would come and we're here. So really exciting. Um, My name is Sarah Sims. I'm the co-founder of Lady and Larder. We are a little jewel box of a cheese shop in Santa Monica, California, on the west side, just a couple minutes from the beach.
0: That's amazing. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's pretty magical. Magical little spot. Uh, we feel very lucky to be here and I just like thank my lucky stars that I get to come and work here every day. So, yeah. Um how we got into cheese. Where do you even start? When you, when, I, when I first like thought about that question, I go all the way back. I see, I see like childhood us and we grew up luckily in a household with two parents who cared a lot about food <laughs> and entertaining. And the first cheese boards I ever saw were the ones my parents put out because they were the type of people where if you showed up, it was like, what do you want to drink? Let's put some snacks out. That's the kind of household. The kitchen was the the center of our homes, very much so like a safe, happy place in my home. And our family always did, did dinner together, like as soon as we could get up on a step stool. So my first experiences with cheese were... At home with my parents as a kid. And I mean, I grew up, I was born in the middle of the 80s. So I mean, like string cheese was a big deal when that came out. My dad was really into easy cheese in a can, you know, like the port wine balls, like the processed ones with the nuts all over them, or in the little like plastic cup that's like the bright red swirl through it. Um, or like the treasure cave blue cheese crumbles. I mean, when I talk to people about American cheese. I'm always like this industry is really new. And by new, I mean, it's like 30 years old. So when I go, I'm, I'm 30, almost 37. So when I was born, the industry was like just getting going. And I would say that the first decade or so of my life was like a lot of processed cheese because that's what was big. Um, and then the artisan cheese world has just sort of developed and gotten bigger and bigger over the years. And I went to culinary school and worked in restaurants and I grew up in a food family. So like my love of cheese just grew through the years. And then I was a private chef for 10 years before we started the cheese shop and got really into cheese during that time. Made a lot of cheese boards. <laughs> I, clients were always entertaining. So I put out plates or boards of cheese and I just fell in love with it and kept having this feeling of like, oh, I want to go deeper here. How do I go deeper?
0: That's amazing. I will, I will totally say that some of my first real cheese experiences growing up, I grew up very poor, but I would still take those few dollars and go buy one of the tubs of the port wine cheese, the cocana or whatever it's called. (laughs) <laughs> like, And that would be like my snack and yeah, ridiculous, but. <laughs> oh yeah. Our
1: dad used to shoot the easy cheese out of the can onto wheat thins. And we were like, that's the best snack that exists or like straight in your mouth. I don't know. No judgment here. People still come into the shop and are like embarrassed to talk about their processed cheese. And I'm like, I love American cheese. I have deluxe singles in my house right now. There's a time and a place for all cheese.
0: Right. I oh. have to tell people that when I went to, um, Austin, in 2019 yeah I went and worked behind the Antonelli's counter but you know what else I did I went on a queso tour and had seven different types of queso in in two weeks so like I'm here for it
1: (laughs) people will come in here and go oh I'm making queso and I'm like do you have Velveeta because that should be your base if you want the right texture we can add to that but like don't try and put this like aged cheddar as your base it's not going to work for you
0: (laughs) you're not going to get where you want to go nope there's time and a place for it for sure (laughs) So true. Um, So let's talk about Lady and Larder. Um, How long has you guys been open? What kind of prompted you to open a shop? So we will be seven years old on May 1st.
1: That's crazy to think about and say. The idea literally started, the first time we ever wrote it down was on a napkin over Christmas break In December of 2015, my sister and I were in a bar with our siblings and parents as we like, we usually are together over the holidays. And we're always talking about like, what are we doing next year? We're not so much a resolution family, but we're like, what's your goals for the year? And how can we show up and support each other? Like, what do you want to do next year? What does it look like for you? And i had been toying with this idea. Food delivery seven years ago is nowhere in LA. It's a huge thing now in most big cities. It was like, there was one company that did it. And then there was actually a bakery here called Susie Cakes, which is I think chain in lots of places now, but they were the first people that I saw that were delivering cakes. You could like order a cake and it came in a box. And it really sparked this idea in me one day, I'm like if you can deliver a cake, like why couldn't you deliver a cheese board? That's way more delicate than a cake. And at the time we were doing I was private chefing, I was doing catering and My sister and I had just designed my wedding together and we knew that we wanted to do something together because we really love that project. And we're like, how can we do more things together? And can we do business together and bigger things? And all these things kind of came together and like, okay, well, I'm like renting people my nice like Heath platters or my, you know, nice wooden boards. And I got to go hunt them down. If I make someone a cheese board, like, why can't we develop something that's nicer than grocery store plastic? It comes on wood, glass jars. But it comes in a box, like a cake box. So I'm a a pizza box and a cake box. So the box is like the size of the board enough so that you could be transported anywhere and arrive ready to serve out of the box. Like, why doesn't this exist? There was this, like, at the time I remember thinking there's catering with minimums and fees and servers. And then there's grocery store cubes of cheese on plastic. And there was nothing in the middle. So it's like, how can we fill that 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 gap when you're heading to someone's house for dinner and you want to bring an appetizer, you could order this technically online and have it delivered same day. Our our beginning concept was like we'll do three sizes of boards, small, medium, and large. You can order them online. We'll work out of commercial kitchen space and then it'll be delivery only to greater Los Angeles. And we'll do like a low delivery rate so that it's accessible and people can just have them like delivered to a party. And that's what we initially thought the main use would be. And then it's turned into obviously something so much more than that. And there was also this huge, we had a bunch of people that ended up replacing their florist with us, like for births and funerals and birthdays, they'd send a cheese board instead of flowers. And we were like, oh, we didn't even think about that. There were always so many things we didn't consider in the beginning that became, and then weddings and big installations. And at, after that initial launch the first year, literally like built a Squarespace website, two bottles of wine deep one night. I'm like, I can build a website. (laughs) Uh, And then I remember looking at the website and being like, it's basic, it's straightforward. You know, we'll just like under promise over deliver. I remember being terrified of posting too fancy of a photo and then not being able to meet that every time because we were going to focus so much on seasonality that I was like, if it's, you know, will they be mad if there's a cherry in the photo, but it's not cherry season, how will we? And, you know, at the end of the day, we ended up, just showing the seasonality explaining that we celebrate seasons and now people just trust us and know that they're going to get something that's peak season and if they ask for things that aren't we always explain like that's a wonderful thing to love however you can't have watermelons in October (laughs) (laughs) and it's an educational moment and we get to talk about the season so you know that's kind of how it all started that's how the idea came together and at the time, there was this incredible cheese shop in San Francisco that no longer exists called Mission Cheese. Remember Mission Cheese? Every, yeah. Every love, Every cheese person does. And they were 100% domestic. And they were the only place I'd ever been that was just 100% American cheese as a, they were like part restaurant, part shop, part kind of, you could sit at the counter, have a cheese plate, beer. And I thought, you know, around that same time when we were getting ready to open the business, we got on this family trip to Italy- and my sister and I had flown in to meet my my parents and my brother, who'd been traveling all around with his girlfriend at the time. And we flew into this farmers market in Nice before we were going to head down the coast of Italy. And I remember walking through the farmers market and like having the most out of body visceral reaction, like literal tears at this cheese stand where they, they gave us a sample and then like pointed to the island behind them and were like, "That's the animals and that's where the milk comes from. It's like made right here." And the sense of place was just like incredibly overwhelming. And I felt that way the whole trip. And to anyone that's been lucky enough to travel outside of the U.S., when you're in these like small or large European countries, for the most part, you're eating things in each town that come from that place. The wine is grown on that hillside. Everything is within like a 10-mile radius of the town you're eating in. And the sense of place is overwhelming everywhere you are. And when I came back home, I thought, I don't feel bad here. I don't feel that. Every cheese shop I go in has the same bulk imported nuts and the same membrio and the same, none of it's even from here. And I was like, okay, I get it. Like, I get why that's appealing. Europe's been doing cheese way longer, but I, we have a lot of cool stuff happening here. Why can't we build this shop or this business? That's like a love letter to California. We'll just, you know, we we'll use hundred percent domestic makers and then all the accoutrement will be super seasonal, farmer's market driven. It's got to be possible. And we'll find local bakers for the bread. And we'll just outsource to all the best people that we can find to work with in our area. And that's kind of how the whole thing came
0: together. That's amazing. I... um Was fortunate to go to the stall Saxelby stall like many, many, many years ago. And that was like, you know, after listening to Anne on on cutting the curd for so long and like she kind of kept me really rooted to like East Coast happenings because I've been a West Coast girl for most of my most of my days. Um, But like getting to walk into someplace and be like, this is all American artisan, wonderful Mm -hmm. stuff. And I really love when people really take that, that that can be a marketing, a piece of the marketing now, and people respond to that. Whereas, like, I've been in the industry for like twenty one ish years now, and people used to tell me all the time, "Oh no, there's no good American cheeses." I'm like, "That's funny." I eat a lot of them, so yes, I,
1: I still hear it. I still hear it, and I'm like, "Come by the shop, let's taste together." And I love nothing more than when like a French person comes in and I say, "I have nothing from France," and then I give them something from like Andante and maybe one of Soyoung's Young's cheeses. And they're like, where is this from? Like California, right. California. Um, but I just love that you mentioned Ann because like there is no, there there was no greater champion of cheese than Ann. And she was also one of our like very early mentors and idols when we opened the shop and I was lucky enough to, we got to interview her a couple of times when we did it uh, during the pandemic when we did our cheese chats and then she came to visit us in LA and there was no one that was more supportive more into small makers, supporting American cheese, just like general, her enthusiasm around cheese is just like, I feel like those are the biggest shoes left to fill. When we lost Anne, I was like, what are we going to do now? Because this person is like a, there's a huge hole in our industry without her and her Absolutely. voice and everything. That she did. So if you're listening and you don't know who Ann is, look her up right now. Um, she had a book that came out too, that you should have every cheese lover should have. And you can still support her company and um, her partner and her family. And she'll just be like a cheese icon forever,
0: at least in my heart. She's one of the few cheese people that I actually couldn't really talk to because I would get like starstruck because I listened to the podcast for so long and I felt like she was already my friend. But then when I would see her in person, even though I know she was the nicest person, she was always super nice to me, but it was just one of those. She's just one of those people that I was like. She's just done so much for our industry. And I just had held her in such a high regard. So oh, but I think that same. y'all are uh champ- championing the same values as her and you're doing a great job. So
1: we very much look up to Anne. So that's a huge compliment. But I mean, it's also like we get to be the champions of so much incredible product. Uh, that's when I look at our case every day, I'm like, how lucky are we that we get to be the ones that are on the front lines talking about all this amazing cheese. And when we go to visit the makers. Sometimes I'm like, you guys have no idea the impact you have because you're not on the front lines. You don't get to see the reactions that we get to see when we give someone a bite of your cheese. And that can get lost sometimes when you're like literally in the trenches or the vat (laughs) all day long and you're not getting to see the customer experience. So I always feel lucky that we get to be that piece of the pie.
0: Yeah, I one thing that I really love about you guys is your Instagram is so it shows the seasonality like your stories are always at the farmer's market picking out the new stuff like that's just, I really appreciate how you do that because it really does tie everything back to where you're getting everything from and who these, who are these people behind all of this stuff. Plus also, y'all have a little nice aesthetic bent to it. So where does that come from?
1: Well, first in the transparency of sharing the people that we get to support and work with in the beginning, especially because there's so many companies that are selling cheese boards now or trying to get into the board business And a lot of people would say to us, like, why why are you giving away your sources? And in my mind, I'm like, why would we not? Because these are people who we want to survive. They're farmers. They're people that literally forget to invoice us. Like, these people need to still be here. And so if we don't share about the work they're doing and who they are, how can we ensure that their existence continues? So to anyone out there that's thinking about supporting local farmers, like, please share their names, tag them, talk about where you got it, because that gets, that gets them support. And it's really huge to get farmers direct support. It's why still to this day, six years in, I don't use a middleman to buy nuts or dried fruit. I call each farmer individually because I want them to have the full margin. I want to be able to put the money straight in their pockets. It's important. And you also ensure you get to like meet the people, learn their processes, know you're getting fresh product. It just gets you so much deeper than if you were to use a middleman there um, as far as the aesthetic goes i can't take all the credit for that my co-founder and twin sister boo has an incredible eye i think we've always both been very um art driven we obviously my i'm more into the food side of things and she's a literal artist i mean from I and mean, she paints she's a photographer she's a designer she's storyteller. Like there's nothing that my sister can't do. And basically anything she sends me, I'm like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen this. How did you make this? So I'm, I don't know like where that came from. All I know is that I love getting the chance to work with her and create beautiful things every day and just try to show like, that's why we leave things. We we like imperfect. We like organic. We like things that aren't waxed. We like to leave the leaves on because it reminds people like full circle, where did this come from? And and then that gives like, that's the beginning of a conversation piece for talking about where it came from and the season and that sort of thing. And I mean, we're knee deep in this all day. And I still, every farmer's market am learning something new. So that's why we like to share it also is that like, we want people to learn along with us. We're by no means like the all-encompassing experts here. So when we find out something new and cool, we want to share it and bring people in with us. Um, And hopefully it's crazy when you, that's the best part about social media. You put something out there and the engagement, I always learn something. Even when I'm sharing new information, like it, someone will come back into the DMs or in the comments and be like, but have you heard of this? Or have you seen this or this variety? And it always turns into something bigger than it started as, which is like the beauty of the connection that social media gives us, I guess.
0: Uh, I want to go back to something that you had mentioned about uh, the middleman kind of distribution and the difficulties surrounding actually reaching out to all of these separate um, entities and what that entails from shipping, invoicing, all of that stuff. That's a lot to take on. And it's understandable why people use distributors because it's an easy, easy thing to do. So to actively make that choice is going against the grain and making your life a little bit harder. So can you tell me a little bit more about that side of things?
1: I hope my bookkeeping team is not listening to this. because they're always like Sarah streamline. No, trust me. This little piece of paper is a receipt. <laughs> <laughs> uh- there's so many farmers. Have you ever shopped a market when they give you, like rarely do you get an actual receipt. It's like a reused piece of a box or something that they've written on with a little, like it's like worse than a doctor's handwriting. You know, it's like got dirt and mud on it. Here it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, not that we don't use distributors. We use distributors for cheese. Let me be clear on that. We do buy some cheese direct from certain makers that either, aren't in distribution or don't use, they don't use it. They're not big enough to have it. And there isn't, I do think a time and place for distributors. There are a couple of distributors that I work with that are irreplaceable their knowledge, their relationships when, and they really care. I like to work with smaller ones, the smaller, the distributor, the general like better experience I tend to have because they're usually holding less cheese in their warehouse So things are getting turned quicker and you're assuring freshness, the kind of cool thing that I feel like changed in the world of distribution after the pandemic. So when the pandemic hit, all the distributors panicked and like stopped buying cheese. So that was actually a time when a lot of cheesemakers came direct to us and were like, can I just sell to you directly because I can't get a distributor to buy my cheese? I'm going to have to dump it. Great. So we ended up building all these relationships. Distributors kind of got cut out for a bit. Then they came back. And I think realized that the best way to ensure that, especially with these like cheeses that don't have giant shelf life, right? Like fresh cheeses, that the best way to do it was probably to like set up a pre-ordering system where people, you know, and so almost all of the distributors we work with now are like more than 50% on a pre-order system where we literally are placing the order, the maker is making it it's coming to the distributor and then to us. And the distributors are great because if it's a cheese maker that's somewhere in the Midwest, getting that cheese on a plane or to us directly is super expensive. So the distributor helps to like pull five different makers in one area onto one plane shipment or one truck and get it here. And like, there is a use in a, you know, a way in which distributors can be very helpful. And so I want to say that on their behalf, but as far as the accoutrements go and like our nuts and dried fruit, I do find that those things sitting in warehouses, nothing good ever happens. And (laughs) most people don't have refrigeration to hold nuts or fruit in. Grocery stores don't even store nuts refrigerated. They're like in the snack aisle and they go rancid in 90 days sitting at room temp. So that's why we get so many people are like, oh, I can't stand a walnut. I'm like, but have you had a fresh one? Like a cared for one? (laughs) Because I swear it'll change your life. And so that's why we buy direct too, because then it comes straight from the farm. It goes straight into our walk-in. And I know that it's being cared for and held the right way. And we get to have that relationship with the farmer. Like it's a win-win. So yes, more paperwork, but worth it to me.
0: Yeah. I was in no way trying to dog on distribution in any way, shape or form. I was just, I'm like, I do. There is, there is a, they do
1: serve a purpose. But you know, I the the bigger they get, they they distribute. I don't know how people do it. I've thought about that business for a long time. It's like very small margins, and they're working with products that, if they can't move, goes bad, and then there's like losses, and then there's also always disasters. And it's like with anything, you're transporting delicate things across a country in a refrigerated truck. Like the chances that that goes out of temp or there's damage. There's just so many obstacles. So when cheese actually arrives to us looking beautiful, I'm like, hallelujah, it made it, wow. Um, So yeah, it's like, it's very special when you think about the network of how things actually get where they need to go. None of it's easy.
0: Yeah, I've just uh, been thinking a lot about the consolidation of distribution across the country when we watched during the pandemic how smaller companies were able to, meet the needs of the community in a much faster, more visceral way than like the bigger companies that were just not buying anybody's cheese anymore. They were freaking out because they had, you know, all of these cases of soft cheeses that they had to deal with. So I had hoped that coming through this, that we wouldn't quite see as much consolidation as we've been seeing over the last even two years. Um, But it's, it's, increasingly I think becoming a problem. Um, So it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot and I want to do an episode on it, but it's also like, people don't want to talk about that. Like the people in it don't want to talk about it.
1: (laughs) It's sort of true, but I do have some people who would be good guests for you on that topic that we can sidebar about who I think would be open and maybe shed some light on the larger picture for consumers and buyers and all of that. Because what I would say is that some of the smaller ones you work with are genuinely trying to figure out a better way to do it so that it works for everyone right, and that right. we're getting the best product to the customer and how do we do that? And it's just Absolutely. hard. Everything this whole year the last two years everything is just more and more expensive. Nothing has gotten less expensive. So it's like how do we keep doing this and it's already that's the biggest I think um Obstacle that we face being 100% domestic shop is that, weirdly, domestic cheese, way more expensive than imported brie. The volume of cheese made internationally is so large that by the time it lands here, even though you've, like, got this carbon footprint that's much bigger and it's coming from a much farther place, generally, it's much less expensive than the artisan brie-style cheeses that you're seeing come out of California,
0: well, and the cost of opening a, a creamery cheese making facility in the United States is astronomical at this point. So, um, yeah, it's it's even a much different land than, you know, when I started 20 years ago when Jasper Hill was just getting their start and people could just kind of like, you know, figure it out as we go. But it's so much more difficult now with FISMA and um, all of the like safety regulations that are important, but also a cost to everything.
1: Yeah. But I think that's the next, like, that's what we'll see next in American cheese is now this like, okay, we've created this foundation. We've been doing this a couple decades. Now let's talk about the next thing, which is aging cheese, like real affineur work, but in the U.S., which doesn't really exist in a big way yet. There's been a couple people that have tried it, don't exist, trying again, small scale. But I think that's the next wave of American cheese is like, how do we start holding onto it, aging it and like seeing what we can really do with it. Because right now, as you're saying, the cost and the overhead is so much that most cheese makers that I speak to are like, yeah, yeah, my cheese would be better two years old, but like, there's no way I can hold onto it for that long because A, I need the money. So I have to liquidate it and sell it. I don't have the space to hold it. And like, why would I hold a product that's going to lose weight over two years and I get less for it? <laughs> so convincing people that there's a
0: bonus to
1: aging cheese is like more barriers, but also Europe does a great job at it. And there's a lot of really special cheeses. If you can age them out a little bit.
0: Right. I also think that the West coast just kind of needs a model like the Murray's or Jasper Hill. Um, cause we um, don't have that over here, but we have West so many coast. cheesemakers.
1: I'm trying to figure that one out. So if anyone has ideas, hit me up.
0: <laughs> I think there's a few of us that has been brewing in our brains of like, we need this over here. Cause I mean, Washington state alone has 50 licensed dairies and cheesemakers. So it's here, it's happening. And there, people are figuring it out on their own, where if we actually had trained people who knew what they were doing to take on that role, it could save a lot of these farmers so much time and energy. Agreed. And better making a uh, better cheese in the end. So
1: we heard it here now, people, but it, that's, what's next for the West Coast. <laughs> it's
0: coming. <laughs> Um, so both you and your sister have families and kids and other jobs even. And so how do you manage all of that and then have the shop? And I I don't know. I was just like looking at both of your Instagram profiles and your little bio is like a litany of all of these amazing things that you you all do. So how do you manage it all?
1: So. When I bought the domain for Lady and Larder, two literally two weeks to the day I found out I was pregnant with my son Maverick, who's just turned six. And I think if it had been reverse, I wouldn't have had the guts to do it. <laughs> because that whole first year I was literally like that crazy pregnant lady waddling around being like, Do you know what a cheese board is? Um, <laughs> uh, trying to like sell this idea. It was wild. It was like the craziest time. And now Boo has two uh little girls both under age two. So we have three three children together and we love having them as a part of the chaos of it all. I mean, Maverick's first word was cheese. He calls this his cheese shop. He tells me he wants to just like, what, I, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to work at the cheese shop. So it's like, it's a dream that he gets to, they get to like see their their moms working and doing this. We grew up with um, an incredible stay-at-home mom. So in the beginning, there was a lot of mom guilt around like, are we, are we just... Are we missing things? Are we not doing it right? And at the end of the day, you realize that like whatever reality you create for your kid is their reality. They're not comparing it to anything else. So just bring them into the wonderful life you already have. And it's all going to work out. That's the ethos we kind of roll with. And, you know, we really intentionally built this business. So I worked in kitchens. If you're any good in a kitchen you're going to work nights and you're going to work weekends and you're going to work holidays because you're going to be on the A squad and you're going to go on all those busy, those busy shifts. And in my mind, I was like, there's no, there's a reason why there's more male executive chefs because women drop off because they have kids and they need to be home and they can't be gone every single night. And, you know, the stats don't lie. So we're like, how can we build a business that offsets all of those issues? And so we close at six o'clock. <laughs> We close at six o'clock so that we're home for dinner and we close two days a week. Would it make a lot more financial sense to be open six or seven days a week? Absolutely. But right now, with the size of our team, having two days off in a row gives everyone rest and we have set days where we're like, we're there, we're there with our kids and we're home at night and that's not a mistake. It was very intentionally built that way and dinner's also my favorite meal period. Like I love a glass of wine, love to sit down and I want to be there. I want to be there for bath time. I want to be there to tuck them in. So it's possible. It's very possible to do. You just have to know what the life you want to live is. So we would be back into our, like, what do we want our life to look like? And then how do we get there? How do we build it around that? Otherwise you're definitely going to work every night and every weekend and every holiday. You have to kind of set those boundaries and as this business grows, we try and figure out a way as the team grows to be able to do more and say yes to more. But right now we, we definitely like being a, being moms or being a mom's a huge priority. Don't wanna mess that one up. That's the one thing I wanna nail. So <laughs> the, those are definitely like priority conversations we have all the time. Um, as far as like the organizations you're talking about that we work with outside of here, um, I was telling my mom this yesterday, I'm like, there's nothing that brings me more joy than growing a business that allows us to do things bigger than us. So contribute to organizations doing work bigger than us, contribute to things in our community. Like what's the point of building this thing if we can't use it to do things bigger than what we are? Yeah, we're just a cheese shop, but yes, we can host blood drives and we can mentor Girl Scouts and we can do things that actually have impact, you know, ripple effect way beyond this little shop. So that's, you know, and our kids get to watch us do that. So we really try to walk the talk. Like we want to build kind little humans. I think we have to model that. And that's kind of, it, it also makes us, I think, do more than we ever would without them because your kids think you're like a superhero. They look at you like you have all the answers, you're a superhuman. And so you really wake up every day and you're like, how do I actually be this person? It's inspiring to have all these little monsters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. So I recently saw that you guys did some boxes for the Golden Globes recipients, which I think is a pretty, I was Shocked when I saw it. Like, how cool is that? Um, what are some other really fun things you've gotten to create, like for people? I mean, that's the best part
1: about this shop. You never know who's gonna walk in or who's gonna call. You just don't. And every day I'm like, I think we've peaked. I don't think there's a cooler client or person. And then the phone rings and you're like, who? Who? Who called? I mean, we've had we had Secret Service come in a few weeks ago. And I was like, there's Secret Service in our shop? Like. How do they know we exist? You guys, if you you haven't been to our shop, it's a very small shop on a very unassuming block. (laughs) A lot of people will come here, visit from out of town and be like, it's so small. (laughs) Instagram, like there's so much personality there and so much heart that you assume it's gonna be like giant inside and we're very small, very small little shop. And I know that I always knew that small was doable because of Anne. If you've been, if anyone was ever visited Anne's original stall, it was like her counter was like (laughs) tiny little, you can't see because I'm using my hands as a podcast, but it was like a little tiny cheese counter. One person can stand there and you can make a lot of impact with small. So we, I mean, we live in Los Angeles. So obviously like celebrities and movie premieres and lots of like crazy things. And a lot of times we don't even know initially who we're working with on repeat customers we do, and we build relationships, but sometimes it'll be the assistant or the private chef that calls. And then later we'll see it somewhere. Someone will call us that was at that event or shows up on tagged on social media. And you're like, oh, wow, I had no idea. (laughs) Incredible. But that's the whole point is like every customer special. So everyone gets treated, gets the same magic, but it is really cool to have a business that gets to serve so many different types of people. And everyone loves cheese, like it crosses all barriers, all types of people, even finicky celebrities love cheese. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, and I think the coolest, what what was I thinking when I saw that question initially? When we, in 2019, we were, um, we got selected as one of Oprah's favorite things and Boo and I got to fly to New York for 24 hours to Oprah's office to build a cheese board for Gail at the, at the top of this building. And we were in New York for 12 hours and we literally filled our suitcases with cheese. Like we got on a plane with suitcases of cheese. So fly to New York to build Oprah a cheese board. That's crazy. It's crazy. I remember getting back on the flight that night and being like, who are we? <laughs> who are we? And who's crazy enough to travel this far with a suitcase of cheese? But we, we tend to, um, we're not very good at saying no, <laughs> we're, we're big, we're big yes people and then figure it out later. So that tends to lead us on a lot of adventure.
0: That's awesome. I can only imagine the surrealist imaginings of in your brain of like, what is happening that I'm just <laughs> making a cheese board for Gail. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, so here's a totally random question. So your twins do you have twin taste like do you uh, do you guys both like the same things or how does that work out in terms of like when you're tasting cheese together do you often find that you agree on things or do you not just interested in the whole twin aspect of food tasting I guess so
1: food tasting is a little bit different than everything else my being someone that has like professionally trained in kitchens and obsessed with food in the way that I am like boo loves to eat and but like I'm like I have this thing where every memory in my entire life is a uh, like connected to sensory and food so like I can tell you what flavor the lollipop was in the emergency room when my brother cut his foot when he was 6 it's sick it's like I can tell you what it smelled like and what was on the table all of my memories are connected to smells and tastes. And when I realized that not everyone did that, I was like, oh, it's like, maybe, a spe- maybe it's a gift. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I think there's a word for I, that. I
0: don't know what it is, but I'm sure that there's a word for I it.
1: And it's always like, Boo loves this game at parties. She'd be like, Sarah, t- tell us, tell us what happened and you know, during this memory. And she'd be like, how did you even know that was happening or what that tasted like or smelled like? But I love it. It's like very- deep passion for food and the connection it plays in our lives and so I don't like not liking anything like I had a phase in my life where I like wasn't into olives as a kid and I was like I just haven't found the olives I like and that tends to be my feeling about food if I taste something and don't like it my thought is there's nothing wrong with the item I just haven't figured out the right way to enjoy it so I keep going back. Like I'll just keep trying or different sourcing or different preparation. So I pretty much love everything and have a respect for all food in some way. Boo's a little pickier. She'll go through like phases and she had some aversions during her last pregnancy to like goat cheese. So I had to be like very careful. She'd be like, you know, I'd sneak it in places and she'd be like, how dare you? How dare you? How you not love this. Um, so she, she can be a little bit pickier, but we tend to have a lot of overlap in general with like our aesthetics. Like for a while we lived in two different cities and States and we would show up like at the airport to greet each other in the same dress from the same brand and the same color, wearing the same nail polish color, the exact one without ever talking about it. So we do a lot of that kind of stuff where we pick the same thing and overlap on it. I think our, and in general, Booth's very trusting. Like when we go out to eat, she's like, just order for me. So she's, we have a lot of overlap. Probably well, more was than gonna the I going to say average. that's,
0: that's pretty trusting if you're slightly picky and you're like, just order for me. I would never, I would never do that. <laughs> oh, I'll even get a...
1: her when I'm not there and be like, what do I order? But I'm like, I'm not even at the meal. <laughs> what do you get here?
0: I mean, I guess that's not true. I I can be very much like this is what I want to eat. But <clears throat> if I'm going somewhere that I know that it's like this chef is really amazing, like I went to um, Renee Erickson's bateau here, which is like a steakhouse, fancy steakhouse, essentially. I'm a and I'm yeah, she's, her stuff is great. Um, but yeah. I'm not normally someone who's into like heart or liver or things like that. That's a little out of my realm normally. Um, and I'm also a little touchy on mushrooms too. Um, and we just did the like, <laughs> yeah, it's for a sharing. thing. <laughs> um, but,
1: if, but... Her, if she was like, this is what I'm going to make for you, I'd be like, yes, ma'am
0: let's go. Yeah. We picked the chef's course and there was a dish that was like hearts, livers, and mushrooms. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to probably like that. Ended up being my favorite dish of the night.
1: Literally never had one thing she's made at any of her restaurants in her cookbooks ever. That's not like this is delicious. She's very talented. Renee Erickson people. If you're in the Pacific Northwest and you haven't been to one of her restaurants, seek it out. Right. Seek it out. And also she has two cookbooks. If you're, if you're not there,
0: at least two, right. I, I there's, it's hard yeah. to keep up. Yeah. It's hard to keep up. Um. So what are some of the best parts of getting to work with your sister, owning a shop, um, playing with cheese all day? What do you love about all of that?
1: Hands down. The best part of our job is the humans we work with. We have the best team We get to work with the most amazing people and yeah, it's like cheese shop dream. So fun. I'm so glad we get to do it, but it's the humans inside the building that make all of this worth it and so much fun. And we have this really diverse group of personalities and people who all contribute and show up here with like full hearts every day. And it's it's incredible. I just feel so lucky to get to to be in the trenches with all of these these amazing humans. Um and really just proud. I'm proud all the time. Even though I'm not in the building, I know that whoever walks in the shop is going to get treated like family. And there's like an earnestness and an authenticity to the humans here. We we don't necessarily hire the most qualified people always, resume wise, but we hire personality because I don't think you can train that. You are who you are. So I hire the human. And then, you know, I can, I can train you how to cut cheese. (laughs) We can do that. That's no problem. So, you know, that's like the hiring process for us is really probably different in that way. And we've hired a lot of people with like zero food experience from a completely different industry who were interested in being here and were the right human fit. So that's the most magical part of this whole thing is getting to surround ourselves with such such wonderful people every day
0: and then getting them excited about cheese and all of the things that go into
1: it I mean the whole room stops here when there's like a baby carrot you know like if there's (laughs) we're unpacking produce and someone finds a radish that's like smaller than a dime it's like everyone needs to stop come over fawn over it for a bit take pictures (laughs) there's a lot everyone understands like the curiosity and the enthusiasm that we have around produce and all the items we get to work with. And we like, we we support that here. We're like, yes, let's take the time to stop and like all share in the wonder of, of this radish. <laughs> it never gets old. I keep thinking like, well, eventually we're going to get like jaded by this whole thing. We're not, we're not, it never gets old.
0: <laughs> well, you also live in LA and your farmer's markets are all year round. Phenomenal. I mean, I can't really say too much because I live in Washington. So our farmer's markets are also, we have a few key ones that are all year round, but yeah, it's something else down there for sure.
1: We are ridiculously lucky. And I, every time I travel, I'm like, oh, because I go to farmer's market. That's my favorite thing. When I travel, it doesn't matter where I am. I'm like, I want to go to the farmer's market here and see what, what they have. And the year-round diversity of a of an LA or a Southern California farmers market is—I've never seen anything like it anywhere. It's very, very special. We're we're super lucky.
0: Yeah, this time of year up here is like lots of leeks, <laughs> big squash. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love I'm it, but still. I'm into it. I'm into it. I'm into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to hit you with the the. Speed round-ish. Okay. Speed round-ish. What is your current cheese crush?
1: Changes every day. The last thing I put in my mouth that, like, almost moved me to tears was something I didn't expect. It was an unexpected moment. I opened uh, a Beecher's four-year extra-aged piece of flagship yesterday. (laughs) like one of those cheeses i hate to say take for granted but i do because it's just like they're always great it's always a home run everyone loves Beechers, but i never really take the time to taste the extra age one and it was like textural bliss so nutty it was was like super emotional that's my crush today
0: i love that (laughs) um what is your favorite pairing just across the board like what is, what is Sarah snacking on at home on a consistent basis?
1: A lot of nuts, a lot of nuts at home. And a lot of just like, I love like nutty hard cheeses at home for snacks. Cause also like kid friendly and not messy, but entertaining Sarah. My go-to is usually like, like warm dates that are like, I puff up in the oven with a little olive oil and flake salt and like some super beautiful blue cheese of some kind. I love the sweet salty. Yes every time.
0: Yum, yum, yum. Um, best cheese slash food memory, like the memory that you come to as your comfort space that makes you happy. Doesn't as have to be exactly the thing that you were eating, but even just like the space and the people you were with too.
1: The last time that I was moved to tears, in regards to cheese was a partnership we did with um, an incredible group called the Cheese Culture Coalition, and we worked with them to put on a educational series for the Girl Scouts at this new center that they built in Inglewood, California. So we had a group of about 30 girls between the age of 10 and 12, and we gave them little tasting kits with different types of cheeses with each different type of milks, so like a sheep, a cow, a goat. And there was a point in the tasting where they just tasted a shove and then they asked the girls who had never had a goat's milk cheese before. And the whole, all the hands went up in the room. And I just like, I'm like almost crying thinking about it because you, you just got to be in the room and watch this like younger generation of girls experience a complete category of cheese for the first time. And I think most 10 to 12 year olds aren't eating a lot of artisan cheese. So getting to watch all of their faces, smell, taste, just experience what I get to be around all day was super moving, super magical. Watching someone eat anything for the first time is usually really emotional for me. (laughs) But these girls, like it was, it was super special. And it reminded me of how important it is to be doing work in our community. Even if it's just cheese can make a big difference in people's lives and um, just got to show these girls like what what exists like I don't think a lot of them have ever considered it like being a cheesemaker we were just talking about how hard it is for that industry to continue not a lot of people in school are like I want to be a cheesemaker so getting to share what that path could look like and how important it is to make beautiful products is super moving special
0: that's awesome I will say that when I first started as cheesemonger people used to laugh when I told them that I was a cheesemonger and then over the last like 10 years or so, it started definitely, especially the last five or so, people would be like, Oh, you're a cheesemonger? Wow. Like, that's so cool. Or people are now intentionally going into like younger people going into like, I want to be a cheesemonger. And I'm like, Wow. I most of us just kind of fell into it. So <laughs> it's awesome to see people uh, like intentionally doing it. <laughs> isn't
1: it? Oh, it's so cool. I love it. Magic.
0: Well, is there anything about a lady in larder or the cheese scene as a whole that we didn't cover that you feel is something we should talk about? Can we talk about butter
1: for a second?
0: Uh, That's one of my favorite topics. So yes, please.
1: (laughs) I feel like this is also like a big 2023. We always treat butter like cheese here. Like We put it in tasting plates and we eat it by itself and we're very much into that. (laughs) A lot of people are like, you do what? <laughs> you just like eat it like cheese, especially good cultured butter. Delicious, delicious. Um, I feel like there's, I, I don't know, but I, should I say, can I even say butterboard? Is that a thing I'm allowed to mention on this Absolutely. podcast? I'm not, not that I am behind that giant TikTok craze, but I do think it's getting people to talk about butter more. And in the US, there's never been a lot of conversation or respect around butter the way there is in France or anywhere else internationally. So I think it's kind of special to get people coming in and asking about good butter. And, you know, there's a bunch of people in the United States that make ridiculous butter. So getting people to understand why they should spend money on it and what place it has in their lives, I think is another trend 2023, 2024 that I'm excited about. Are you hearing a lot about butter?
0: I mean, I talk about butter all the time. I, it's, I have a butter tattoo. I am a little melty pound of butter by Shannon Perry here oh. in Seattle. Uh, yeah, it's uh, butter is definitely something that I am super passionate about. We are very fortunate that one of my favorite farms is 30 miles away from here, and they just let me go wander around, and they also make some of my favorite butter, but I am obsessed with butter. Like, I was in... Uh, Cherry Valley Dairy is the one closest to me. Yeah, they don't. Sh- I mean, in California
1: Stepladder Creamery in Cambria, and they started making butter a couple of years ago, and it's it's insane. <laughs> it's so good. It's just like very very special. So, you know, I guess this is a public service announcement to go out there and don't be afraid to spend money on good butter, and don't be afraid to eat it like you would cheese you know it deserves its own place it's not just for cooking and melting and you know also what do you think about when you're telling people to eat butter temperature wise are you like a room temp butter person I guess it depends on your use but if you're gonna eat it just like straight on bread or a cracker sometimes I kind of like it just like a little a little over it like still cold is not the right word but like a little more stable than like melty.
0: Yeah. It's uh, there's a there's a definite time. Yeah. I I don't know. I'm a counter butter person. We have good butter out on the counter all the time because toast and butter is like comfort to me, like a good warm bread, delicious butter. That's my favorite. Um, Yeah, it's I actually I'm looking at this thing because I got. Fortunate enough to get some of the Animal Farm butter, I paid eighty dollars for a pound of butter.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh! Yeah, I asked the right question. I'm seeing now. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was a. I just so happened to log on Saxelby's just when they were doing their once, maybe twice a year that they sell it, and it went through. And I was like, I think I, I think I just got the butter. Um, and so I will try butter everywhere, anywhere I go. I'm always looking out for the butter where, what was what's it going to be? Um, actually it was a lot different than I thought it was going to be. Um, it was not salted like sweet cream. Um, but the thing about it was texturally. No salt, no salt. Um, but texturally it was like, because they hand ladle all of the cream, um, it was almost like, you know, when you put like a piece of lardo or like guanciale or something like that on your tongue and it just kind of like melts and kind of leaves a little bit of greasiness, but in, a, in the best way, that's what it was like. Wow, I've never had any butter texturally have that same feeling to it.
1: That's so cool. Yeah. See, magic of yeah. butter people get out there. <laughs> out there and um i hope when this goes live people will like in the comments maybe share with us some of their favorite butter sources domestically would love to hear
0: it yeah i um, i want to know more the more butter the better um <laughs> it's i when i was a judge for acs i did get the salted and unsalted categories of butter which is like hard thing to do cuz we usually have the same people doing it every year and that was an interesting mm-hmm. ride <laughs> I'll just say that
1: on a closing note of ACS will I see you this year July
0: ACS absolutely I'm always there I'm. So- thank you so much for joining me I'm so glad that we had uh this conversation um and I just really appreciated also that you ran up to me at ACS and that was like such a I have been watching your what you've been doing for so long. And I've just really appreciated everything that you've done. And it was just so nice to have you come up and say hi to me. So thank are you. Are
1: you kidding me? You're, like, you're a cheese celebrity. Huge deal. Huge deal. Huge deal. I am I was honored to um, have stolen a few moments of your time. And thank you so much for having me today. And hopefully next time Boo will get to join and we'll definitely both see you in July at the next ACS.
0: Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your passion and enthusiasm for food. It's supremely infectious. This podcast is recorded, produced, and edited by me, Janae Muha. Musical credits to my husband, Ben Muha. If you'd like to continue the conversation, find me on Instagram or Facebook. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform so more people can find this podcast Thanks for listening, and remember to keep spreading the word of good curd.